Really good to see everyone this morning. We'll be singing number 366 in your hymn books. As everyone knows, we live in a chaotic world, and this hymn reminded me of the Christian's place near to the God, to God's heart. So keep that in mind as we, we sing this hymn. There is a place of quiet rest. There is a place of quiet rest near to the heart of God. A place where sin cannot molest near to the heart of God. Oh, Jesus, bless Redeemer, sent from the heart of God. Hold us away before Thee, near to the heart of God. There is a place of comfort sweet, near to the heart of God. A place where we our Savior meet near to the heart of God. O Jesus, bless Redeemer, sent from the heart God. Hold us away me for thee near to the heart of God. There is a place of full release near to the heart of God. A place where all is joy and peace near to the heart of God. Bless Redeemer, sent from the heart of God. Hold us away before Thee, near to the heart of God. morning. It looks like we have a nice crowd this morning. We're certainly glad that each one of you can be here. And if you're visiting with us, we're glad that you can be here and uh, you're our honored guest and we pray that you'll come back and be with us every opportunity that you have. We have uh, some blue cards in front of you in the back of the pew. If you're visiting, if you would, please fill one of those cards out and just put it in the collection plate as it passes by, and we'll have a record of your attendance. Just a few announcements before we begin our worship service. Let me get my eyes on. 
Uh, we're blessed to have uh, two new families with us. Uh, they've been attending with us for some time, but officially placed membership with us last week. Uh, I'd like for you to welcome the Nicholas family. That's James, Haley, Connor, Emerson, and Lincoln. And the address is, uh, their address is in the, uh, in the bulletin if you find out that and write that down in your directory. Also, the Scott Gunner family, Scott, Lauren, Landon, and Ellie. And their address also is in the bulletin. So we're uh, delighted to have uh, you two families with us. What a pleasure it is. I've known uh, James and Scott for a long time. But uh, we're blessed to have you guys with us. And thank you for being a part of our family. Uh, next uh, Sunday, Steve Worley and Adam Cox will be with us. Uh, we have been supporting them some time for the, with, in the work at, uh, in Nigeria. Uh, Steve is going to be uh, speaking during the uh, Bible class hour, and Adam will be speaking during our worship service. So you want to make plans to be with us next Sunday in our Bible class hour to hear Steve and also Adam. They have a lot of good news to share with us. We're always glad that they can be with us. Uh, there's a couple of baby showers that are coming up. If you will get your bulletin and look in that, you'll find out the times that they're going to be uh, having those showers. Uh, one is for Adam and Rebecca Mond, February the 18th, and also Amber Fike's daughter-in-law, Alan, and Amber's daughter-in-law is going to have a baby shower uh, soon. Also, we're going to be hosting a marriage workshop on April the 12th and the 13th. It'll be Friday evening and Saturday. It's a free workshop for all of us and everybody, everyone in our community. So you may want to plan on coming for that and also inviting others to come and be with us. Also, uh, next Saturday, men, we have a, a breakfast that we're going to have at 8 o'clock. We encourage all of you men to be with us. And also the latest Bible class will be next Friday, January the 26th. Keep that in mind. We've got some folks that are sick among us or in our congregation members. Uh, Brenda Kemp uh, found out that she had COVID. Uh, talked to her this week. She said she's still really weak and coughing. Uh, and so she's not doing very well, but she asked us to keep her in her prayers. Also, uh, Eugenia Hockett, she uh, has an appointment with the doctor if we can get there tomorrow, uh, uh, tomorrow morning to see a specialist about her back. Hopefully, uh, she's going to be able to have surgery on that back soon. And Tavin Boslow will have uh, septoplasty surgery, tonsils and adenoids renewed removed and a scope on his lungs to help with his breathing January the 31st. And that's going to be at the Children's Hospital in Little Rock. So let's keep him in our prayers. And Nancy Desmaine is going to have surgery Thursday, February the 15th at Unity Hospital in Searcy to repair her high anal hernia. Mary Nell Faith is still very weak. She's not able to be with us. We miss her 
in her absence. David Mays, uh, still in a lot of pain, still passing some blood. Uh, talked to him yesterday, and he said he hopes to be able to have surgery the first of next month to remove that kidney stone that's giving him so much trouble. Let's keep David in prayers. He's not able to be with us today. And I talked to Peggy Hemby just a minute ago. She came in, asked him about Kenneth, asked her about Kenneth, and she said Kenneth is doing much better right now. Even the cancer treatments, uh, he's responding well from, from, for that, from that. So let's keep uh, Kenneth in prayers and also Peggy. Also like to encourage all of us to pray for our military and, and their families. Sometimes we overlook them, but, but we've got, I've got a grandson who is uh, Gannon Roberts, and he is <clears throat> in the Marines, and uh, we appreciate if you would pray also for Brian Church, Matthew Powell, Kent, Keith Robertson, Austin Minshew, Christopher Nelson as well. I'd like to read just a short scripture and then we'll have our prayer. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Would you pray with me? Father, as we enter into our worship, may it ascend as a sweet-smelling aroma and acceptable sacrifice well-pleasing to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray, who is our Redeemer and our friend. Amen. Following along in the book, we'll be singing from 146. 146. Grace greater than our sin. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilled. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. Dark is a stain that we cannot hide. What can avail to wash it away? Look, there is flowing a crimson tide. Whiter than snow you may be today. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace, freely bestowed on all who believe, you that are longing to see his face, will you this moment his grace receive? Grace, grace, God. 
that is greater than all our sin. <clears throat> Next hymn will be number uh, 263, 263, uh, In the Desert of Sorrow and Sin. If you'd like to mark in your books the invitation hymn, 683 will be the invitation. 263. If it's convenient for you, would you please stand and we'll have a prayer following this uh, hymn. In the desert of sorrow and sin, though I faint as I journey along, with the warfare without and within, see my strength and my hope dearly gone. I thirst, let me drink of the life-giving stream, let me drink, tis a I turn to the found from the rock that was smitten for me, and I drink and I joyfully count all my trials a blessing to be. I thirst, let me drink of the life giving stream, let me drink. Is a rock left for me. Tis the water, the water of life. O thou God of compassion, I pray, let me ever abide in thy sight. Let me drink of the fountain by day. Till I join thee in mansions of light, I thirst, let me drink of the life, <coughs> let me drink, tis a rock left for me. Let's pray. Our dear Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for all the many blessings you've given to us. We thank you for your love, your grace, and your mercy. Father, just be with this church at this time as we're gathered here, and be with Brother Josh as he's prepared a lesson for us, and that we may open our hearts and our minds to the lesson that's given. Forgive us when we sin, Lord, and thank you for your son. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Isaiah 53. So I want to invite your attention there. Whatever you got to do to get your eyes on the text, if you need to grab a Bible in front of you or use your phone, by all means, 
Isaiah 53. This is a very interesting chapter in the Bible. It's only 12 verses, but it's packed full of words of only about Jesus and only about what he has done for us. The past three weeks, I've, I've loved looking in Isaiah with you because I've what we have been preaching out of, we've been highlighting Jesus in Isaiah, the Messiah, the, the Savior to come, the one that was promised. And in this chapter and the chapter before, really, it starts back there, but we will read it together this week. He's really referred to as the servant. And so he's highlighted in, in a little bit different way in different chapters, but here it's in his humility. It's in his, his willfulness to do what needs to be done that is discussed. There is eternal security for the faithful believer. If you are saved, you can know you are saved. If you are a Christian, you can know that you will get to heaven, that you will be with God for eternity. It's not a guess. It's not a vain wish or a hope as the world would say it, but it's as the Bible would define hope as a confident expectation. I know for sure it's going to happen if I'm a saved and faithful Christian. You see, there is security in Christ who became our sin offering, as we'll talk about in this chapter, who was our propitiatory sacrifice, as we will talk about in this chapter. And you and I, we, we hear these words offering and propitiation and, and righteousness, and we got to think, what are we even talking about? Because it seems sometimes you and I, when we come together on Sundays and Wednesdays and other times, we use words that we wouldn't normally use the other five, four days of the week. It's words that are very churchy, I guess we could say, that, that Christians use a lot and know, or rather Christians should know the words that we use and know what it is that we're talking about, how often the Bible refers to these different things such as holiness and the justice of God. We need to understand what it is that we read. We need to understand what it is that we study and we talk about. When you are studying Scripture... When you see something that you don't know what the word is, don't just skip over it. Dive into it. Look into it. Do your best. I mean, we can't always do it perfectly, and you may not have all the tools, but maybe somebody like me or the elders could help you out in your personal study and, and find out what does this mean that we're reading so often? What does this mean that God is talking about? You know, one of the big reasons I think that we might fail to convert people to Christ from a false belief of what Scripture says, is because oftentimes in, in denominations and other things, people have this sense of security that, that is titled, once saved, always saved. But I promise you, you can look all you want. You're never going to find that in Scripture. But nobody really wants to give up that sense of security, that, that safety net, that feeling there. But what they don't understand and what you and I can do a better job in is showing there is security for the faithful believer. Key word, faithful believer. There is security in it. And so we're looking here in Isaiah 53. I'm sure you're there by now. In verse 1, and really he starts talking about the good news. I've heard it said before, if you understand the good news fully, you really won't have a problem being motivated to tell 
people about it. If it's something you really actually know to be good news, and it's something you actually understand. You see, we have a hard time talking about things that we don't understand. But when we know something through and through, we can talk about it. And when we're excited about it, we do talk about it. It's not even a planned thing. But look in verse 1, talking about the servant. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? In this context here, Isaiah switches, as we talked about before, standing in the different position of, of someone speaking. And so in this position where he's speaking, he'll switch three times in this chapter. Right now he's speaking as the prophet or the preacher or the teacher's voice that is talking about the servant. And in this context in verse 1, he's talking about the necessity of a righteous person from the context before and up to now of a righteous person to suffer in the place of the sinful. That was the message that wasn't believed. Who has believed what he has heard from us? They didn't believe that in the day of Isaiah. Paul will tell us they didn't even believe it in days of Paul. Do you think people have the same problem now as well? That we don't believe it or many people don't believe it in our time as well? He predicts the time as well when Christ will die for our sins, provide the eternal security, but many won't really believe it. They won't believe that there really is security in Christ. People need a sense of security in this world, especially for salvation, though. And what does the Bible say about it? Well, we know that people can fall away from the faith. We know that once you're saved, you're not always saved because you can fall away. You can, as uh, Timothy is written to by Paul in 1 Timothy 1.9, Paul tells him that some have made shipwreck of their faith. Does that sound like somebody that's saved? There's several other uh, instances and places we could look at to show, yeah, you can fall away. But does that mean that there's no security? Of course there is. Verse 2, talking about the servant still, he, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form of majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. What do we learn out of verse 1 and verse 2? Verse 1, we learn that this servant that's coming, he's necessary. He's necessary for us to be saved. He's necessary for salvation. Even though people won't understand, people won't believe. But we also learn, verse 2, that the servant himself, he is just ordinary to the eyes. He's humble, I guess we could say. Think about how... Isaiah is describing Jesus and how we can, on this side of the cross, look back at the circumstances of Jesus and his birth and Jesus and his life. We know that he was born and laid in a manger, right? And we know later on, right after that, when they take him to the temple to dedicate him, there is an offering that's supposed to be done, and there's tiers of, of offering for what the person can afford. If you can't afford a lamb, well, then you give the next best thing. And if you can't afford that, then you give two turtle doves. And if you can't afford that, then you give a tenth of an ephah. And then the priests supply what is needed on behalf of them when they give their best. And the best that Mary and Joseph could give at the temple for Jesus during this time of dedication was two turtle doves. They couldn't afford the two tears before that. So he didn't come from some real high-class society living. He didn't come in the form that they were looking for as a king riding in on, on a horse with a banner flying behind him to conquer the enemies and conquer the Romans. No, he came very much ordinary, very well just kind of you could just skip over him in a in a way when just kind of looking at him or not listening to him he grew up a common jew 
He looked like a common Jew, but eventually the speech and the miracles would prove he would be anything but ordinary. But still, some wouldn't believe because of preconceived ideas they had about the coming Savior. He, he didn't fit the bill. He wasn't what they wanted him to be. And you and I, if we don't study Scripture carefully and if we don't really understand Jesus in the Gospels and Him and His whole personality, all of His characteristics, you and I run the risk of also falling in love with the wrong idea of who Jesus is and getting the wrong idea of who God really is and what they really do and what their characteristics really are. And because of that, we could end up rejecting Him. But they outright rejected Him, verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. We esteemed him not. I didn't think we were, he was anything great. I didn't think he was anything good. You know, the servant himself, Jesus, would preach about trusting in God. And that that's your answer to most all, if not all, of your troubles, which is true. But then the troubles came for the servant when he was betrayed and rejected and hung on a cross after being beaten. And he suffered like the rest. He looked like the rest. He seemed like the rest. And then he even suffered like the rest, but even more so. That was what the disbelieving Jew and what the condescending Romans, that was the proof that they needed, that he was no one significant, that he was a liar. And they even said, if he really is the son of God, let him bring himself down, saying if he is who he claimed to be, this would not be happening to him, so he must be a liar. And good riddance. He deserves what he's getting. Only, of course, you and I know that he didn't deserve the grief and the sorrows, but it wasn't his grief, it wasn't his sorrows. Verse 4 will tell us, and 5 tells us it was ours. And in verse 4, beginning there, we were in the place of Isaiah being the preacher and the teller, but now in verse 4 through 6, Isaiah is taking the place of those that rejected him previously, now understanding, now being enlightened, now having a good idea of the servant. He says in verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced, he was bruised, he was smitten. You see, this is where we see God for sure dealt with sin. God did deal with sin. What are these griefs? The word literally means sickness. Disease of sorts, not just saying, oh, you know, good grief, Charlie Brown or something like that, and we just kind of brush it aside. No, the idea of sin is sickness. The idea of sin is defilement and separation. And when you and I sin, if we have any kind of conscience at all, we're sorrowful, we regret, we have the guilt of our life's mistakes, but he took all of it. Yes, the guilt and the shame as well. He took it all from us. God dealt with sin himself. Verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. You see how it was us? Make it more personal. It was me. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Transgressions literally 
transgressions and, and iniquities to the words for sin, but they have a different meaning to them a little bit. They emphasize something different. Transgression means I stepped over the line and I shook my fist at God making us enemies. And I inflicted the harm on myself. The stripes that I've got, I did it myself. I, tro I chose the sickness. I chose the destruction of sin. I deserve the death. I deserve the suffering. But here comes the servant. Here comes the Messiah, literally standing in the place of me where I should be, taking all the pain, taking all the humility, taking or the humiliation that I deserve, that I brought. And by doing so, he tells us in the second half there, verse 5, he was the peace that we were so desperately seeking and the healing that we desperately need. And there's one way to get it, and God did it. If there's any other way, God would have dealt with it. In fact, Jesus even prayed that in the garden, did he not? Lord, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And there in the garden, and here prophesied about Jesus, we see the emphasis on the servant's will and desire to do the will of God. We see the things that were predicted to take place on the cross in great detail. And this is not the only place. You could see everything that was going to happen on the cross painted out in the Old Testament Scripture. Our punishment was put on Him so we could have peace with God, so we could be healed. Because all of us have sinned and gone astray. Verse 6, we all like sheep have gone astray. Romans 3.23, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have turned everyone to His own way. Whatever way it was that you decided you wanted, Whatever way I chose to sin was because I chose I wanted that instead of God. But the Lord has laid, has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Have you examined your sin and your life? Have you examined your life as a whole? The more we understand sin, the more we understand God's view of it as well, the more we ought to realize how filthy and how undeserving we are. And when I see that, it makes the message of the cross, it makes the actions of what Jesus did so much more personal and so much more real for me when I realized that I'm the one that needed a Savior. If no one else was in the world living and I was the only one and I sinned, He would have came and did the same thing just for me. And He did it for you. But make it personal. He did it for me, your Savior, my Savior, everything and anything that we needed in Him. What did God do about all of us going astray? Well, 1 John 4.10 tells us, And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He had loved us and sent His Son as a propitiation for our sin. The word propitiation in, in Isaiah 53 is not there, but the definition is that we're going to see later on in verse 10 and 11. So look with me in verse 10. I know we're skipping a few verses, but we will come back to it in a little bit of a different way. But verse 10, verse 10 through 12, you get five major things, five key terms that you and I use a lot. I'm only going to bring up two, really, that Jesus became, that Jesus did for us. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt... He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. And there's your first word there. 
I underlined it as an offering for guilt, our sin offering in verse 10. He became our sin offering. For past sins, for present sins, for future sins. I love what Matthew 20 verse 28 says, that he came to offer his life as a ransom for many. A ransom meaning there was a price that had to be paid. And guess what? Jesus came, he paid the price himself. Now, you know what we find today among a lot of people is people trying to pay that price themselves. Instead of trusting in Jesus, having already paid the price, trying to pay the price ourselves, though we might not put it in those terms. What I mean is, has anyone here ever thought, I'm not good enough to be a Christian, and because of that, maybe I should just quit? Because if so, that person does not understand the gospel thoroughly as we should, does not understand the good news, that the good news does not allow me to say that I'm good enough. Because who in the world is good enough? And this is where y'all would say, nobody. (laughs) Because nobody is good enough. Except one who came and did everything that could be done and already paid the price. We need to understand the terms that you and I talk about with him being our sin offering, with him being our ransom. When we're trying to be good enough, when we're trying to to get ourselves saved or do enough good things so that I can go to heaven, so my good outweighs my bad, then without even realizing it, what we are in fact saying is I'm trying to pay the ransom myself. And you've just elevated yourself equal or greater to than Jesus. You and I, obviously we can't do that. But we think too often that it relies on me. The only thing that relies on you is your repentance and you doing your best to walk faithfully. If you're doing that, you have security if you have been baptized into Christ. But look at the second part of verse 10. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. What's the offspring? What's the fruit, the result of what Christ did? It's Christians. It's the church. He accomplished everything that he needed to accomplish. And so the glory that's being given to God, the the will of God being done, it's done through Christ. It's done through the church and it's being glorified in the world. He is being glorified in the world by his will being done. Verse 11 there, he says, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. Circle that, because there's your definition for for propitiation. To satisfy. The satisfying of what? The satisfying of God's justice. The satisfying of God's wrath. As a direct result of verse 10, what happened on the cross, what happened through the Savior, through the servant, God was satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. There's a definition for justify. And he shall bear the iniquities. A direct result of what he had done. God is satisfied. That's the definition of propitiation. And the propitiatory sacrifice is what he did on the cross for you and I. Taking the place, satisfying to the fullest what God needed to be done to deal with sin. And he's not only satisfied with what happened then, but he's satisfied with how Christ saves me when I first come into him, when I first come into contact with the blood at the point of baptism. And he's satisfied as well continually after if I'm walking faithfully in him because he has justified us. He has accounted righteousness, accounted meaning gifted, 
being credited, gifted righteousness. You know, we hear a lot in the Old Testament seeing the word justified, the definition of it being used, or sorry, righteousness being used, talking about people who walked righteously in the commandments of God. And so we ask the question, were they without sin then? And the answer is obviously no. Even the best ones that we looked at have sin. But they were doing righteousness. They were doing the will of God. They lived righteously. But without the grace of God, who credited the righteousness to them, they'd still be lost. Jesus became the sin offering for all past sins and all future sins. That is the propitiatory sacrifice. That is the satisfying sacrifice for God. Because then when God looks at us justly, he looks on us as if we'd never sinned, never had the guilt, never had the grief and the sickness and the sorrows, all of it gone. There's the good news. And in fact, that's great news. We could argue that it's the only, by definition, good news that actually exists in the world. There's positive things, but in terms of the goodness of God and good news, there's but one good news. He continues on there at the end of verse 11, that he shall bear their iniquities. He's our sin bearer. And Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28 says that Christ, having been offered once, to bear the sins of many. I like how those two verses tie in together. Because what happens after baptism when I, when I get saved? Well, I probably sin at some point. Hopefully not minutes after, but, you know, I, I probably do sin shortly thereafter. But I'm not trying to, and that's what's important. We mess up, we stumble, and John writes for us to cut it out. We'll look in First John here in a minute. But we sin... And as we continue to repent, as we continue to walk in Him, He cleanses us. He accounts us righteousness, accounts our sins as if we did not commit them because of His grace. That's for you and I as Christians. Look in the last verse there, verse 12, and then we're going to look at some New Testament verses. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. says that he bears the sins. He made intercession for transgressors. That's you and I. You and I, we've stepped over the line. He was numbered with them as if he was one, but we know that he really wasn't, but he took that from them and took that from us. Do you see why it's important to define our terms and to understand what it is that we're reading and looking through so that we can understand Jesus and understand His sacrifice more fully, a whole lot better than we did before. The five things in Isaiah that it says, verse 10 through 12, that He does for us. He's our sin offering. He is our propitiation, the propitiatory sacrifice. He is the accounter of our faith to righteousness. He justifies us is what that means. He's our sin bearer and he intercedes before us. But to me, of all these things, propitiation seems to be the most alien of the words. I can't even hardly say it right without stumbling over myself, as you all have noticed once or twice already. It's just an odd thing. We don't say that in our nine to five, do we? We don't use it, but the Bible does quite a bit, either by definition or by the word itself. And it's because of him being our propitiation, the propitiation of God, that you and I can have that eternal security that we talked about when we began. 
We can have the confidence that is in him if you're saved. But we have to pay the price on our part. We've got to cut the sin out of our life. We've got to be done with that. Look with me in 1 John now in verse uh, chapter 2. 1 John 2. He'll use the word itself as well here. 1 John 2 verse 1 and 2. He says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Remember not to sin. You shouldn't sin. Don't do it. Do your absolute best not to do it. But we know you're not perfect, he says. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. There is a difference between a practice of sin, meaning a lifestyle, something I repetitively do, something I repetitively choose to do, and an accidental act of sin, a weak moment. You and I, we shouldn't have this practice of sin, this regular thing. That's what needs to be cut out. That's what needs to be stamped out that God needs to deal with. But I've got to bring that to God himself. Because he says in verse 9 of chapter 1, just a few verses back, he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When I confess those things to God, you know, some of the hardest part of, of getting rid of sin is acknowledging the sin and acknowledging the sin to the one who is without sin. But that's what I need to do. If I'm not willing to name the sin by name, I'm not willing to give it up. And so I need to acknowledge the sin to God and say, help me deal with this problem. Help me get rid of this out of my life. And what does it say? It says he is faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse us. He'll fix you. He'll doctor you up. He'll get rid of the grief, the sickness of sin and make you clean. Squeaky clean, we might say. Perfectly clean in him. But that's where the hard part is. We'll struggle with it our whole life of giving that sin up. And I shouldn't be discouraged from it. I shouldn't trust in my own walk at that point. I've got to walk the balanced and the narrow path of faith and trust in him, giving this up to him and doing my part to walk. I do my part to walk and he does his part to save. But look with me in Romans 3 as well. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. We quoted the first part of this, but let's continue reading. Romans 3, 23, many of us know, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But guess what? (laughs) That'd be bad news. There's good news in the rest of the verses. And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. And so we ask the question then, where is your faith? This was a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, he says. Then where is your faith? I like the question that Jesus asked, that same question, to the apostles in Luke chapter 8 when he calms the raging waves and the seas on the boat, right? He doesn't ask them, Why do you not have faith? He asked the question, where is your faith? Where are you putting your faith? Are you putting your faith in yourself? Are you putting your faith in your walk? Are you putting your faith in your faith? Hmm, it gets a lot more legalistic at that point, and I start to think more like a Pharisee, the ones that weren't so good. 
or do I really put my faith in him? If we're putting our faith in ourselves, we, we have to have this inner turmoil of knowing we're not good enough. And upon realizing that, I've got to give it all up to him. Jesus became something he had never been on the cross, propitiation. And there he satisfied the justice of God for every Christian, everyone who's willing to become a Christian and commit themselves to him. You know, many go to church, but many also don't commit themselves actually to Christ. Many are not actually faithful followers. There are a bunch of pretenders in the world, and God is telling us, reminding us, don't be one of them. Don't be one of the many walking pretenders that are out there. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Look there with me. Hebrews 2, 17. It says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, talking about Jesus, of course, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. You see, Romans 3 talked about how he passed over the former sins because of his, uh, because of his sacrifice. And he's also talking about if you are his people here, verse 17, his people have their current sins being forgiven as well. You arise to walk in that newness of life. You arise to be new and clean in him. But uh-oh, I sinned. And guess what? I don't have to be too worried about me going to hell because if I'm covered, if I continue to walk faithfully, the only reason I don't need to be uh, or I should be worried is if I give up the walk, is if I give up Christianity, then I'm no longer saved. If I'm no longer obedient to him to death. But if I'm continually obedient to him, I have assurance. I have a guarantee that I am saved for eternity. You do everything you can on repentance part. And God does everything you need on the saving part. A few more verses. But the next one I'm going to go to is Acts chapter 8. So go ahead and turn there. But Acts chapter 20 verse 21 would say, testifying to both Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And I say that verse because we just said another word we use a whole lot, repentance, repent, that we need to make sure that we understand. I remember being at a couple different Bible studies and asking the question, what does it mean to repent? And usually the first answer that comes out is, and this is studying with non-Christians, the, the answer that comes out a lot of the times is it means to feel sorry. Well, no, that's remorse. That's not repent. Repent does not mean to feel bad or to feel sorry. Repent is an action. It means to turn away from that sin. And Acts 20, 21 tells us to not just turn away from sin, but turn towards God, repentance towards God and faith in Lord Jesus Christ. To turn away from sin and to turn towards God. That's what it means to rightfully repent in Him. And understanding the good news, understanding the servant talked about in Isaiah 53 leads to repentance and leads to being baptized in Him. That's what happened in Luke, or sorry, Acts chapter 8 that Luke wrote about. In Acts chapter 8 verse 28, here's Philip. The Holy Spirit told him to go this way and he saw he was reading the prophet Isaiah, the Ethiopian eunuch. Verse 29, the spirit said to Philip, go over and join his chariot. 
So Philip ran. Why did he ran? Why did he ran? Why did he run? Because he probably figured that what God wanted done needed to be done fast. He ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. You know what we already see here? We got a truth seeker and we got a truth speaker. And God will always put the two together. Verse 32, now the passage of scripture he was reading was this, and this was the few verses we skipped in Isaiah 53. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe this generation? For his life was taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you does the prophet say this, about himself? Or about someone else. And I love verse 35. It gets real good. Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, told him the good news about Jesus. I don't know how long they studied for, but talking about Jesus here, studying about Jesus, one, it can be done obviously from the Old Testament and should be done. Two, Studying Jesus and the good news about him with someone that's never heard it should, will, rightfully studied, always lead to the point of baptism. Because verse 36, And see, they're going along the road. They came to some water. The eunuch said, Here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And I'm sure you've heard the story. They went down into the water, and they baptized him in the water. Why did we get from Isaiah 53 to Ethiopian eunuch, all of a sudden studying Jesus from Isaiah 53 to this point, because that is the very point when you obey the gospel. That is the very point when you become a Christian, the very point when you become saved, and the propitiation, God looks at you as if you've never sinned at that point. Look with me, Romans 6. This is the last place we'll look, unless I think of another one. Romans 6. There are, there are a few others. Romans 6. It's interesting. Once you're saved, I, I, I've never understood the idea. I don't come from that background. I don't judge too hard, but I don't know where it necessarily comes from, the idea of being once saved, always saved. Because I read places like this in, the, in Romans 6, 1, when he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Well, your grace... Uh, you got grace now because you're in Jesus. You got grace, and so you might as well not let it go to waste. You're covered. You're good. You can live however you want. You can do whatever you want. But Paul says, is that really the way it's supposed to be? Verse 2, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Because at the point of getting in the water with him, your old self dies. You and your old sin is dead. Verse 3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? You did not die to sin at repentance. You died to sin when you got in the water with him. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly, there's no question about it, 
be united with him in a resurrection like his because we know verse 6 that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin i'll give you the summary version of the rest of the chapter uh, the following verses the summary version is you're no longer dead to sin verse 1 so quit sinning and live he says Live righteously, do righteousness, and trust in God as you live as if someone who has been saved. Because you have been. Don't live and do righteousness because you think you're saving yourself. You live because God has already given you life because he's the one that has done the saving. And I love how this section of scripture here lets us know that for sure our sin is gone when we are faithfully obeying him and that we are for sure going to be with him for eternity. Because of the servant's sympathy, his submissiveness, his longing for the will of God to be done and accomplished, anybody can have a relationship. Anybody can come to that relationship with God. But you've got to put your trust in him. And you know what it means to trust in him? It means to give up the reins. It means to give up control. It means to say, I know I'm not good enough. I'm not even going to try to be good enough. I'm just going to try to do everything that I can because you asked me to live for you. But you've got to make the change from your heart and continue on in him to be saved for eternity. There is security in Christ, but it's contingent on at least, how I'll boil it down, two things actually getting in him in the right way so that he is your propitiatory sacrifice and your sin has been killed all past, present, and future. And two, continuing to walk in faith, doing the best you can to do righteousness while trusting in him to cleanse you. I don't know how I can wrap it up any more than that in a bow. You trust in him. Just because I get in the water and just because I live the life that he has called me to, do I really think that I earned the salvation that he's given me? No. Not even including the fact that I'm still stumbling along the way. But the trust has got to be in him. Well, and that's a big part of what faith is. Hearing what God says, trusting in him, and being obedient to what he says. Faith is trusting in God. Faith is obedience in him. If I trust in him, then I'll be obedient. Not just at the point when I first become a Christian, when I become obedient and obey the gospel, but also for the lifelong of faithfulness he's called me to thereafter. If you're here this morning and you need help with the start or the continue and finish, let us know as we stand together and sing.
Would you have him save you so that you need never fall? Let him have his way with thee. His power can make you what you ought to be. His blood can cleanse your heart and make you free. His love can fill your soul and you will see. T'was best for him to have his way with thee. Would you in his kingdom find a place of constant rest? Would you prove him true? He's providential test. Would you in his service labor always at your best? Let him have his way with thee. His power can make you what you ought to be. His blood can cleanse your heart and make you free. His love can fill your soul and you will see was best for him to have his way with thee. Please be seated. Number 259 will be used for a hymn to help us remember the Lord Jesus as he died. What wondrous love I see freely shown for you and me by the one who did atone just to show his matchless grace Jesus suffered for the race and Gethsemane alone oh a love matchless love oh what love for me was shown his forever I will be for the love he gave to me when he suffered all alone. Terry here he told the three, Terry here and watch for me, but they heard no bitter moan, for the three disciples slept while my loving Savior wept in Gethsemane alone. Oh, what love, matchless love. Oh, what love for me was shown. His forever I will be for the love he gave to me. When he suffered all alone. Long in anguish deep was he, weeping there for you and me. For our sin to him was known. We should love him evermore for the anguish that he bore. And guess him alone oh what love matchless love oh what love for me was shown his forever I will be for the love he gave to me when he suffered all alone
we're here today to remember what Christ did for us. Without Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, and the shedding of his blood, we would have had to die on Calvary's cross. He died in our place to, uh, where we could have repentance of our sins. And so uh, we need to take it in heart as we take this bread and this cup and remember what Jesus did for us. Our God and our Father, which art in heaven, we thank you for your son, Jesus, who went to the cross and died in our place. We thank you, Father, for the love that you, by sending him, and we know, Father, without the shedding of that blood and without the death he did upon Calvary's cross, our sins will not be forgiven. We pray, Father, that we remember these things as we take this bread and this cup this day. For these things we ask now, Son, Jesus' name, amen. God, we thank you so much for your son. We thank you for all his teachings and 
for his ultimate sacrifice that he gave on our behalf. Father, as we continue to remember his sacrifice for this memorial feast, we ask that you be with us. Help us to always remember everything that has been done for us. And I ask that you please forgive us of our sins. In Jesus' name we pray.
but let's take this time to give back to you as you so greatly given to us. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Closing hymn will be 659. Would you please stand? We'll stand also for this prayer to follow. <clears throat> if the name of the Savior is precious to you, if his care has been constant and tender and true, if the light of his presence has brightened your way, oh, will you not tell of your gladness today? Oh, will you not tell it today? Will you not tell it today? If the light of his presence has brightened your way, oh, will you not tell it today? If the faith in the Savior has brought its reward, if your strength you have found in the strength of your Lord, if the hope of a rest in his palace is sweet, oh, will you not, brother, the story repeat? Oh, will you not tell it today? Will you not tell it today? If the light of his presence has brightened your way, oh, will you not tell it today? If the souls all around you are living in sin, if the Master has told you to bid them come in, if the sweet invitation they never have heard, oh, will you not tell them the cheer-bringing word? Oh, will you not tell it today? Will you not tell it today? If the light of his presence has brightened your way, oh, will you not tell it today? Will you pray with me? Almighty Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege and opportunity you've given us to come together and study your word and worship you. We pray that our worship has been pleasing to your sight. We pray that as we go through this week, Father, you help us to Carry the light of your son into the world. Help him to be seen in our lives. And we pray that you give us the courage to share him with others, Father. When we're rejected, Father, help us to remember that your son was also rejected. But he continued until the work was finished. 
We pray that you help us to have the courage to do the same. Help us to continue planting and watering so that we might be fruitful servants for you. It's in your son's name that we pray and give thanks. Amen.